Thank you. Uh, have you ever had a project that you've been working on and it just feels like everything is going wrong? <laughs> have you ever had uh, an experience where you've started the worship service and your guitar just doesn't turn on? <laughs> right? Like literally the most perfect illustration of all time happened right there at the start of the service, right? Have you ever been working on something and it just feels like thing after thing after thing? It's just like, I can't handle it. I'm just done. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Amen. Amen. Right? Uh, one of these things, relatively minor on the scale of uh, problems, but one of these things in our lives uh, is one of our cars. Uh, we have a 2008 Volkswagen Jetta uh, that we call Joy. And let me tell you, she has not brought a lot of joy lately in our household. Uh, to paint a picture of this car, uh, the child lock on the passenger side is broken. And so every now and again, you go to open it from the outside, it doesn't open. Just not going to open for you. Uh, the moonroof will randomly open at any time. So as you're driving, rain or shine, it's time to open the roof, right? The car doesn't know it's raining. This is a perfect time to open. Come, let it all in, right? This is great. Uh, this same car uh, has this ability, uh, especially when it's on an incline, when it's raining, to pool water in the back passenger seat. And by pool water, I mean pool water in the back, uh, kind of by the floorboards, which is especially fun uh, at uh, wintertime when you are literally scraping the ice off the inside of your windshield. Like, this is the car we're talking about. And the most uh, recent experience with Joy, uh, it wouldn't turn off. Like, the car was stuck on. It would not turn off. Uh, I don't know if you can tell by the ways in which I, <laughs> these problems still occur that I'm not super much of a car guy. I'm not great at cars, okay? Uh, but I did some research and learned that the uh, cylinder, there's a ignition cylinder that has to align, wasn't aligning, so the car key got literally stuck in the on position the car was on. By some kind of miraculous effort, Pastor Britta kind of moved the steering wheel and the key in such a way that she finally got the car to turn off. Great. It turned off. It stayed in our driveway. We have an appointment to bring it to the dealership, right? I cannot get the car to turn back on. This car has the best of me. It has bested me over and over again. I am at the end of my rope with this joy. <laughs> so I'm, I'm done, right? Uh, this is in a lot of ways the circumstance we find the Israelites in this morning, right? Problem after problem after problem, I am just done. And I have to admit, uh, we've been in Nehemiah, this series, uh, for a couple weeks now, and I went to Pastor Brent and I said, uh, what's Nehemiah about? Like I was having a little bit of a hard time because I, I kind of get into things and I haven't really been in with the new year and things. And so I saw a video this last week that kind of gave the arc of like why Nehemiah matters. Like what's the importance of Nehemiah? And it kind of builds on this, uh, the space the Israelites find themselves in, kind of problem after problem after problem. They're just done, right? And so uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the, the Old Testament kind of refers to the Jewish people, right? The people of God, these people who are set apart to honor God. And one of the cataclysmic events that happens to the Israelites is that the Babylonian Empire comes in and they destroy Jerusalem and the temple, which is like catastrophic for the people of God, right? Because this is how, not, this isn't just like where they reside, this is how they live their life. This is how they honor the covenant between them and God. And so their whole way of life is completely upended and disrupted and they're put into exile, some of them, right? So they're kind of in this exile. 
Then we pick up in Ezra Nehemiah. Now, uh, Pastor Britta talked about this a few weeks ago, but it was really helpful for me to have a refresher. Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament are one book written by the same author, but our English translation kind of breaks them up into two authors, right? Ez or two books, Ezra and Nehemiah. And they cover these, uh, the rule of these kind of three Israelite leaders, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, right? Zerubbabel, that's a fun name to say, uh, is the first part of Ezra, Ezra is the second part of Ezra, and then Nehemiah is Nehemiah. So these uh, 50 years after the Israelites have this cataclysmic event, they're in exile, Zerubbabel uh, decides he's going to bring a, a number of the people back into Israel and rebuild the temple. They're, they're finding themselves like they're just beaten down. They're not in the place that they want to be. They know that they're supposed to be in proximity to God, and so they want to go back. So he goes back, builds these uh, uh, efforts to kind of restore the temple, and the temple is restored. But the elders who had been in Jerusalem before knew what the temple was like before. And they knew how the presence of God had resided uniquely in the temple. And they're like, it's not here. Right? Like this, I mean, great, the temple's back, but where's God's presence? They're kind of like, this isn't great. Another thing that happens at the same time with Zerubbabel is there were some other, that's just such a fun name to say, Zerubbabel. Let's say that together, ready? Zerubbabel. So fun, right? Uh, <laughs> the other thing that happens with Zerubbabel is that uh, there's these other Israelites who are kind of still living in proximity, and they come and say, hey, we'd be glad to come help you uh, rebuild the temple. And Zerubbabel's like, nope, you weren't in exile with us, no way. And so this effort that is supposed to bring the people of God together actually creates stronger division, right? There's, it's not exactly going the way it was supposed to. Fast forward 60 years, and we have another leader, Ezra, who's the second half of the book of Ezra. And Ezra is coming and says, okay, we need some more renewal, some more kind of rebuilding of the people of God. And so we're going to go and I'm going to preach the Torah, the law, so that people know how to interact and to be set apart, to remind them of the covenant that exists between God and God's people. And so Ezra comes and he's doing this and it's kind of creating some people are understanding things differently now, right? But then what happens uh, is in that 60 years between Zerubbabel and Ezra, uh, some of the Israelites in the area, they married some other people who weren't Israelite. And Ezra's like, you can't do that. Like this, we're the holy set apart people of God. You can't interact this way. And so Ezra gets super angry. And again, this thing that's supposed to bring renewal and restoration creates further division, right? It's like, Time after time after time, it just keeps falling apart. So then we fast forward to Nehemiah, right? And Nehemiah is another Israelite ruler. And in kind of a random, like, it feels like a random sentence in the middle of the first chapter, he says, I'm cupbearer to the king, right? So uh, Nehemiah is this person who's in proximity to one of the Babylonian kings. And as uh, Ezra, or Nehemiah is there, some other Israelites come and they talk to Nehemiah and they say, Nehemiah, we need your help. Right? We need you to come and help us rebuild the walls. The, the child lock is broken. There's water pooling in the back seat. The moonroof is open, and we cannot get the car to turn off. We need your help. And so Nehemiah, he goes, uh, he goes back with a, kind of an envoy with the king to help empower and equip the people of Israel to rebuild the wall. Because they think, maybe this will be the ticket. Maybe this will be the thing that brings us back kind of into this kind of holy city and being together. Spoiler alert, it does not. But we will get to that in weeks to come. So uh, last week then we heard Pastor British who was talking about building these gates, right? The walls are to intended that people come in and out. It's a way to really the whole point was to help people to see God and to know God together as the people of God. So uh, they're doing this work and then we pick up in Nehemiah chapter 4 and things go from bad to worse. 
right? They are already at a deficit. The tank is already at empty because the car's been running the whole time and they've got nothing left. And then here we find them facing more opposition. So this is Nehemiah chapter four, beginning in verse one. Okay, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to take it out. It's just helpful to have kind of context. You can check what I just told you, kind of going back through Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, but also to kind of get some uh, sense of where we are. So Nehemiah chapter four, uh, verse one. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, Sanballat, by the way, is kind of a, a, in proximity to Jerusalem and is kind of an enemy of the people of Jerusalem. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down the wall of stones. Now this is Nehemiah praying to God. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder into a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders." Now, admittedly, this is kind of a pretty intense prayer, right, that Nehemiah prays to God. But you can understand if they've been going after problem after problem after problem, Nehemiah is in desperation. Really, God? Really, we're going to face another level of opposition? I am done, right? This is uh, Nehemiah's honest prayer with God. Be, uh, continuing in verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But... When Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They literally burned with rage. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. It's not looking so great. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I will admit I am a bit of an eternal optimist. And so when I read a passage like this, I'm like, whew. Like, where, where are we going to go with this? This is all not looking so great. Uh, it's kind of going from bad to worse. And so uh, I kind of was asking myself, like, how on earth, what does Nehemiah 4 have to do with us today? Like, why does Nehemiah 4 matter to us? And I think it could matter for a, a number of different reasons. Uh, but one of the invitations I want to uh, extend to us this morning is this idea of kind of shifting and changing our perspective, right? To get a little bit of a, a deeper understanding and to perhaps uh, frame how we understand the conflicts or how we understand the opposition in our life to help frame that in a different way. Uh, and Nehemiah uh, is kind of set up to do that in this story to begin with. The author of Nehemiah 
actually is kind of inviting us to see this different perspective, this deeper meaning that's going on in the context of the story. And so at the very beginning, I'm going to kind of talk about how this is framed and how it's a, a little bit of an invitation to a different perspective. Excuse me while I take a drink from the floor. Uh, <clears throat> to kind of frame this different perspective, what the author of Nehemiah does is they put words kind of around or in the mouth of Sanballat um, to help kind of frame this question. So Sanballat, again, is uh, this person who is uh, an enemy of the, kind of in the surrounding area, has his own ideas for what he wants to happen in Jerusalem. So he's not super thrilled that the people are back and they're rebuilding the wall. And so he kind of lobs all these insults in uh, verse 2, like they're so feeble, what are they thinking they're doing? They can't restore the wall, la da 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 just telling these guys, they don't know what they're doing. And then he says, can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? What Sanballat actually says literally in the original language, which is Hebrew in the Old Testament, he literally says, could those scorched stones be brought back to life from the dust? Could life return to those scorched stones that are in the rubble, in the pile of dust? Can you think of anywhere else in Scripture in which life is brought back to something from the dust? Dry bones, yes. Maybe even further back than that. In Genesis, right? At the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, bring back is maybe confusing, but to bring life, right? At the very beginning in the book of Genesis, God forms humanity out of the dust and breathes life into humanity. And so when Sanballat is talking about the wall, he says, could life be brought back to these dead things from the dust? Right? There's something much deeper going on here than them just working on a wall. And the author of Ezra Nehemiah is helping us to see that there's life being brought back to something from the dust. This is a creation story, a new life kind of story. So then if you uh, look a little bit further ahead uh, with Sanballat, which, by the way, is a weird name to say, like San, Sanballat, Sanballat, Sandlot, I don't really know, so I'm going to call him San, Okay. San, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls, right? So this group of four people, San, Tobiah, Arabs, and Ammonites, are the four people that surround the city of Jerusalem. And so this group of these four people are enraged because they see that the walls are being built. And so literally the people of Jerusalem are being surrounded from every side, okay? But in verse 7, when they hear that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed... They were enraged. The words that are used there, literally in uh, the Hebrew text, are when they heard that the repairs to the wall, the closing of the gaps, it literally says that the wounds were being healed in the wall. That the wounds were being healed in the wall. Now, I don't know about you, but when I talk about kind of putting some putty in a nail hole at home, I don't talk about the wounds being healed. And when I talk about kind of putting up some drywall, I'm not like, oh, I really hope I can breathe some new life into these kind of things that came out of the dust, right? This is unique language. And the point is to help signal for us that this something deeper is going on. There's another perspective for us to understand about what's being talked about in Nehemiah 4. Because you see, if, if Nehemiah uh, was all about just building a wall, which it certainly is about building a wall, but if it was just about building a wall, I think they would be like, I'm done. Right? Like, I am at the end of my rope. I can't do this. 
But it is not just about rebuilding a wall, but it is about attending to the formation of the people of God. It is about breathing new life in things that have died. It is about healing wounds. The work on the wall is not just the work on the wall. It is the work on the community of God, the people of God, to be back within community with one another. And that's why we've been posing this question throughout this series of Nehemiah. What are we building? Are we just building a wall? Or are we actually working on building a community, on breathing new life into things that have died, into healing wounds, into attending to reconciliation? What are we actually building? Now, I think a helpful frame for us to also think about is in the context, sometimes we have an ability to want to draw kind of a one-to-one correlation. How does the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 4, how does that apply to my life directly? Which certainly we want to do, and we'll keep unpacking that. But we have to remember in our own society, so often we often look at my individual journey. And here, Nehemiah is talking about the formation of the community, right? The the wall that they're building is a metaphor for building up the people of God. It isn't that they're just building a wall around one person, and now I am safe and secure, so everybody else fend for yourself. It's a shift from individual to community, right? How are we a part of this thing that God is doing? Do you see the difference there? Right? So it's about the formation of the community of God. It's about the formation of the people. This is what we're building. And so then uh, to kind of continue to help shift our perspective and to figure out how does this apply to us as a community, uh, we hear about these, uh, what I want to kind of consider, three different categories of opposition that they face. Uh, so starting in verse 10, uh, the kind of group is rallied. They're like, we're going to destroy them, right? The enemies around them, San, Guy. Verse 10, meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Is anybody else tired? Is anybody else exhausted? Uh, Can you think of anything else that feels like a pile of rubble getting in the way of the formation of our community? Can you think of ways in which Uh, Sometimes it just feels like problem after problem. Can I keep showing up here? Can I keep working on reconciliation? Can I keep doing this? Is there so much rubble between me and the person sitting next to me? How could we ever be together in this? Can anybody else resonate with something like that? Goes on in verse 11 to say, Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Now, in applying this, I want to be uh, really careful to say that there are many people who do face physical threats, so I do not want to belittle that at all. But to maybe help expand and and apply to us uh, uh, more broadly, can you think of anywhere where it feels like outside forces are kind of crashing in from all sides? Can you think of any circumstances or any areas where it just feels like everywhere I look, there is an enemy before me. There's some kind of opposition. I'm being closed in from every side. How is our community going to make it? Then in verse 12, then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Now, this uh, is from the people within the community, the Jewish people within the Jewish community who are saying, there's no hope, it's done, there's no way. Can you think of any examples in which there might be some internal conflict in the church 
that brings about some opposition? Can you think of any topics, any issues, uh, any ideas that might be polarizing within the context of the church? Right? The music wars. Uh, one on a lengthy list of internal conflict, of places that just feel like there's no hope. What are we going to do? When I uh, thought about how these three categories of opposition kind of translated to today's uh, world, all of a sudden, Nehemiah 4 is like right here. Right? Like, my goodness. This is, this is hard. I'm tired. There's a pile of rubble that I don't know how we're going to work through to build our community. I'm facing opposition. We're facing opposition kind of from all sides. It feels like the walls are literally crashing in. And all the internal conflict that is polarizing and pulling and creating disunity and dissension, all of these things are working against us. What are we going to do? Could there be any hope? I want to name, as we kind of continue, I think it's important to wrestle with that reality, to not just put a quick Band-Aid on these things that are really real, that are really hard. And so as we uh, move forward with what Nehemiah does, I want to be really clear, these are not quick fixes. These actually aren't really fixes at all. The circumstances, in fact, don't actually change for the Israelites. Uh, What happens, if you keep reading in chapter 4, is Nehemiah now is faced with dividing the group of people working in half. One half carries weapons and stands behind the people working while the other people are working, and the people working are holding a tool and a weapon in the other hand. I mean, it's not looking great, right? The the consequences, the, the circumstances that the Israelites face don't change. But what does change is an invitation to understand their approach. Right? This, is, this, isn't a, this isn't about finding an answer. Right? I think pastors and, and we as individuals sometimes, we have this desire to give you like three words in a little alliteration, like rebuild, restore, and redeem, and then everything's going to be fine. Right? Like we, I admit it, I almost had that. I, can't, I was like, hmm, these are good words. But, but that, I think, is, is unfortunately a shallow way of understanding conflict. That sometimes the, the circumstance doesn't change, but how we approach the circumstance can And then there are two things that Nehemiah does that I think help reframe, shift their perspective to reframe this, what's going on, kind of reframe their conflict. So continuing in verse 13, it says this. Therefore, this is Nehemiah now, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points in the wall at the exposed places. The first thing that Nehemiah does is he puts people behind the lowest points. He puts people at the exposed places in the wall. Uh, As we were talking about this this week at staff meeting, this was a a point that many people in our staff kind of highlighted and resonated with, that God, that uh, through Nehemiah, God would put people at the lowest places, at these exposed places. And Susan, our administrator, she said, I think about this as like intercession, right? Of people literally standing behind you in prayer, praying into you in the low places, right? The low places we find in the wall, the low places we find in our community when we find ourselves in a low place. And as I was uh, thinking about that image, this idea of uh, intercession, uh, I was kind of taken aback to think about, uh, so Joy, right, or Jetta, was kind of a 
a little bit silly, but a low place for us in this last year, uh, last couple months. And so when we couldn't get the car to turn back on and it wasn't working, my father-in-law, he said, we have a truck. You're welcome to use it. And so as we were trying to figure out how uh, to do these things, he let us borrow his truck. And then when we couldn't get the car to the dealership to get it figured out, uh, he said, you know, I know a guy. Uh, he fixes cars. Why don't I connect you with him? And so uh, he connected us with this guy who did the work at like fractions of the cost. We called him our Advent Angel, uh, Dave, because he just stepped in and he took care of our car. But then we had to get the car towed to Dave. He lives over in Issaquah. And my father-in-law said, I'll meet him there. I'll meet the tow truck. I'll help him get all set. Time after time after time, my father-in-law showed up in a low place for us. He stood behind us in this low place where the car would not turn on or turn off. The locks were broken. There's water pooling. The, he showed up for us in this low place. He said, I can help. I can be there. I can hold you up. You see, this is a, a beautiful illustration of what intercession is. It's showing up behind people in their low places, in these exposed places in the wall where light literally is shining through and the, the invitation for us is to help shine light further on that so that they might strengthen these exposed places. This is the first thing that Nehemiah does. The second thing that Nehemiah does is in uh, verse 14. Nehemiah 4.14. It says, this is Nehemiah speaking, after I looked things over, literally after I gained perspective, after I paid attention to what was happening, after I sought to shift the perspective of the people, after I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your husbands and your wives, your homes. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families. These are the two things, this invitation to shift their perspective that Nehemiah does. When he says, remember the Lord, it literally says, keep your focus on God. And I was kind of interested as I was reading, keep your focus on God, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. I was like, that's kind of an interesting way to talk about God, great and awesome. And it's actually exactly the same way uh, written in the Bible back in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 21. And in Deuteronomy 7, chapter 21, no, verse 21, that would be very confusing. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 21, it's God kind of having a conversation with Moses and talking about the Ten Commandments, establishing the covenant relationship between God and God's people. And so when Nehemiah gets up and he says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome, he's helping the people remember, remember the God who called you from the beginning. Remember the God who has faithfully called you out of captivity in Egypt. Remember the God who established this covenant, who established you being God's people to begin with. Remember the Lord who is awesome and great. Remember the faithfulness of God. And the second thing Nehemiah says, and fight for your families. Now, I have to admit, I sometimes wrestle when I hear about fighting in the Bible. I'm like, ah, this is tricky for me. I don't know what to do with this. So not to skirt that at all, but I did a little bit of research on this word for fight. And the word for fight in the Bible here is a word that refers to devour or to consume. And most often when this word for fight is used of humanity, of people, it's talking about fighting against another group of people. 
right? So when it says fight, be devoured, devour your enemies, right? Fight against this group of people. Israelites, fight against your enemies or your enemies are fighting against the Israelites. But this word is also talked about in the context of God. And when it's talked about in the context of God, it says God will fight for you. God will fight on behalf of, God will be devoured for the sake of God's people. Now here in Nehemiah 4 is one of the only encounters that I could find where the word fight is not talked about God, it's talking about people, but Nehemiah doesn't say be consumed and devour the enemies that are literally closing in on you from every side. What does he say? Be devoured and consumed for your families. Remember the people who are a part of your life. Be devoured for the sake of the people in your life, for your family. Literally, it means the kin, those a part of your tribe. Become devoured for the sake of the people of God. You see, what Nehemiah does here is he doesn't fix the problem, but he helps give a different perspective. And the perspective that Nehemiah invites the people to is remember who you belong to. Remember who you belong to. Remember God who has been faithful to you all the way back to Egyptian captivity and remember the people around you. Remember you are a part of this community. Remember you are the people of God. Remember who you belong to. Now this doesn't fix all the problems. This doesn't change the circumstances, but it does help us reframe how we engage in these circumstances. Right, I think about, okay, if, if in the context of handling internal conflict within the church, there's still internal conflict in the church. But if I have this perspective, remember who you belong to. Remember that I belong, remember that we belong to God, the God who's been faithful through all kinds of trials and seasons in the church, the formation of God's community in the past. Remember who you belong to and remember you belong to each other. This doesn't mean we can just lob things at each other and just walk away. Remember, you belong to each other. You're kinship, right? You're a part of the same family. Remember who you belong to. When we're facing opposition coming around from every single side and it feels like the walls are closing in, the walls may in fact close in. But remember who you belong to. Remember you belong to God who has been faithful in the past and remember you belong to each other. When we find ourselves exhausted and tired and at the end of a rope and there is too much rubble sitting in front of us, remember who you belong to. Remember you have people waiting, ready to stand behind you in a low place, to stand behind the low places in our community. Remember who you belong to. Could life really come back to these scorched stones? Could life be spoken back into the dust? Could wounds actually be healed? Could reconciliation actually take place? Remember who you belong to. Remember you belong to God and to one another who has been faithful and will be faithful again. This doesn't fix the problem, but it helps change our perspective of how we're going to engage. And that's why we come to this table every week. That's why we come to communion to remember we belong to God and we belong to one another. It doesn't fix our problems. It doesn't make everything all better. I can't give you a three-word alliteration that's going to all of a sudden make you feel happy when you're facing something. But it does help you change your perspective to shift and remember that you belong to God. So as we seek to come to this table, would you go to God with me in prayer this morning?
God, remind us who we belong to. We give you thanks for uniting us by baptism in the body of Christ and for filling us with joy in the sharing of communion. Lead us toward the full, visible unity of your church. And help us to treasure all the signs of reconciliation you have given us and that you continue to call us to. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom we belong. Amen.